Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Some towns in New Hampshire want to cultivate ATV tourism, but not all the neighbors are happy. The machines keep getting bigger and bigger, and the bigger they are, the more noise they make. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll head to the woods and the streets to chart a clash over all-terrain vehicles in northern New England. We'll also head out on the water in search of a prized fish that's biting better than it has in years. There was more fish here than I've seen in 30 years, and I fish virtually every single day. But further south, another group of fishermen worry about what happens when offshore wind farms take off. To me, building wind farms here, it's like building them on the corn fields or the soy fields in the Midwest. And we'll finish with a piece of fluff. First you spread, spread, spread your bread with peanut butter and marshmallow puff. Come have a puff or nutter. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll start with two stories about New England fishermen. One trend they see is really positive. The other one raises questions. Fishermen say it's been decades since they've been able to catch so many Atlantic bluefin tuna so fast. Once severely depleted, populations of the prized sushi fish appear to be rebuilding. Now the industry and some scientists say the International Commission that regulates the fishery can allow a much bigger catch. But some conservation groups disagree. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever has more. Peter Speech is a commercial fisherman who sails his 45-foot boat, the Aaron and Sarah, out of a Portland marina. His rods and reels are dry now, though, and the boat's been docked the past several weeks. That's because tuna fishermen reached their fall catch quotas earlier than ever this year. There was more fish here than I've seen in 30 years, and I fish virtually every single day. This year we caught probably close to the same amount, but in in half the time that we normally fish. This year, Speeches says the thousand-plus boats that fish bluefin off New England were blessed by day after day of good boating weather. Forage fish such as herring and pogies showed up in numbers, and they swam relatively near to shore, bringing the big tuna in to feast, where smaller boats could get at them pretty easily. Above all, he says, there were just a whole lot of bluefin around and biting. They're everywhere. When they hit this, this year in July, they hit from the Canadian border virtually to New Jersey and they were thick and they got caught fast. And fisheries scientists agree. After charting a strong bluefin presence in 2016, preliminary data for this year suggest even better. The increase has been just incredible. Just incredible. Walter Golay is a researcher at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. He compares the recent trend to big drop-offs seen a decade ago. And then since that time, they started to show up a little bit earlier in the season, to the point now where they've shown up in abundance. So we're almost back to where we were, or it appears like we're almost back to where we were in the 1990s. It's really difficult to say clearly what environmental changes uh, could have led to this current increase in abundance. That's Clay Porch, a federal scientist who leads bluefin stock assessments for the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tuna, or ICAT. 
That's the body that's been setting quotas in a 20-year effort to rebuild two bluefin stocks, those caught in the eastern Atlantic and those caught here on the west side. Bluefin are a big, fast, warm-blooded fish that can swim from the Bahamas to Norway in 54 days. Porch says that charting their locations and numbers is an exercise in predicting the unpredictable. But the trend lines are clear, he adds. Recovery efforts since 2010 are showing some real success. They've really taken a lot of steps to get better control in the fisheries and catch bigger fish instead of a lot of small fish and ratcheted down those quotas. So the combination of all those things has really created an environment where the stock can increase. And now that it's increased, we're saying, well, it looks like you can start taking more quota again. The scientists say that starting next year, to avoid an undue risk of overfishing, the Western quota should not be increased by more than 25 percent. But even that much would raise the quotas to the highest level they've been in 15 years. Fishermen like Peter Speeches are all for it. I think we have to recognize that we have made sacrifices as New England fishermen that have paid great dividends and we shouldn't be punished for it. But conservation groups are dismayed by the prospect. Shana Miller, program manager for the Ocean Foundation's Global Tuna Conservation Program, says that in order to continue the stock's recovery, the quota actually should be reduced. If the 25 percent increase is adopted, she says... The data show the stock would decline continuously over the next three years and beyond. And then we'll be in a case where ICAT will be facing its first ever failed recovery plan. And Miller makes a larger point. For centuries, until decline began in the 1960s, the western bluefin population was many, many times larger than now. She says what fishermen and fishery managers today consider abundance is still just a fraction of the species' historic numbers. The bar has been lowered. If you go back 50 years, you get a completely different story, and and that's when you realize how depleted the stock is. There are two major strains of Atlantic bluefin, those that spawn in the Mediterranean and those that spawn in the Gulf of Mexico. The Mediterranean strain is roughly 10 times as abundant as those spawned off this continent and is considered more robust. But when they cross the Atlantic to feed off American shores, they mix in with the locals, making it very difficult to judge just how well the Western population is faring. There is some work being done on that. So what we're going for is right in here, you can see that thicker part where it turns into the thin piece of the otolith. Portland's Gulf of Maine Research Institute houses the hemisphere's largest collection of a tiny tuna bone called an otolith. Researcher Brenda Rudnicki preps the sample that will be used to discern the fish's spawning year, its sex, and depending on the presence of certain isotopes and minerals, which side of the sea it was born in. So that's the part of the otolith that we're going to take. So we're going to make two cuts, one before that and one after that. And that's what we put on these slides to work with. The Institute's scientists are using otoliths to develop data and models that should open a new window on the true size and health of the two Atlantic bluefin populations. But the international body hasn't adopted that work yet. So when the ICAT decides quotas at a meeting that begins next week in Marrakesh, to some degree their assessments will remain beset by uncertainty. That's Fred Bever reporting from Maine. A couple hours south, out on the very tip of Long Island, lies Montauk, the largest commercial fishing port in New York State. The very first offshore wind farm is only a few miles away off of Block Island, Rhode Island, 
and many more wind farms are in the works along the eastern seaboard. These plans have fishermen worried about the impact on their livelihoods. John Kalish reports. Scallop fisherman Chris Scola pulls out of a Montauk marina at 2 a.m. and spends the next two and a half hours motoring to an area about 14 miles out into the Atlantic. Then, with the help of his two-man crew, spends about 10 hours dredging the seafloor for scallops before heading back to port. We have a little patch that's sustaining myself and a few of the other local boats out of Montauk and a couple of guys from Connecticut also fish down here. Scola gives me an earful about state and federal regulations, but the thing that really has his dander up these days is the prospect of hundreds and perhaps even thousands of giant wind turbines spread out in the New York Bight, an area along the Atlantic coast that extends from southern New Jersey to Montauk Point. It's one of the most productive fishing grounds on the eastern seaboard. To me, building wind farms here, it's like building them on the cornfields or the soy fields in the Midwest. Scola belongs to the Long Island Commercial Fishermen's Association, which is run by Bonnie Brady, the wife of a longtime Montauk fisherman. She's an outspoken critic of the wind farms. Here's how Brady sums up plans by New York authorities to site 240 turbines in the Atlantic. A really bad idea that's going to make some hedge funders a nice big chunk of change, and then they can move on to their next prey. Providence-based Deepwater Wind, which operates a five-turbine wind farm off of Rhode Island, is proposing a 15-turbine installation called the South Fork Wind Farm off Long Island. Deepwater also plans a 15-turbine installation off of Maryland, another wind farm off the coast of New Jersey, and one to be located 12 miles south of Martha's Vineyard. And Deepwater is not the only offshore wind energy developer planning to put turbines into the Atlantic. It's not just us in New York. It's all down the seaboard. They want projects from Maine all the way down to South Carolina. These wind farms, Brady argues, will affect commercial fishing all up and down the Atlantic coast. Fishermen go where the fish are. So depending on which fish species that you're trying to catch, right off of Montauk, you could have fishermen from Massachusetts, Maine, North Carolina, Virginia, New Jersey, and Connecticut and Rhode Island. Let's say if squid this year was just crazy off Montauk and federal waters, they'd all be there because that's where they go. If the fishing is really hot off of Nantucket, that's where they go. The New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, NYSERDA, held hearings this summer on a lease area for the wind turbines off Long Island. We have not predetermined where we're trying to locate these. We're looking at a very large area off of New York in the Atlantic Ocean, south of Long Island. Greg Matzad is NYSERDA's senior advisor for offshore wind. He says NYSERDA has been studying the impact offshore wind development has had on commercial fishing in Europe, where turbines have been a fact on the seafloor for 20 years, and off Rhode Island, where construction of the Block Island wind farm, the first offshore wind development in the U.S., was completed a year ago. You know, we want to understand where they fish, how they fish, trends they've seen over time so that we can understand where best offshore wind farms could be located that will have the minimal impact on fishing and then further on top of that how we can best design the wind farms within those areas to make it the easiest for fishermen to be able to fish within them. But make no mistake, he says, offshore wind farms and commercial fishing 
can coexist. We absolutely believe that there will absolutely be fishing within these wind farms. The president of the Rhode Island Commercial Fishermen's Alliance says that so far there are no measurable effects on his members' catches off of Block Island. But a spokesperson for Deepwater Wind confirms that more than a dozen Rhode Island fishermen were compensated for interruptions in their work during construction of the turbines. The Fishermen's Alliance is also calling for further study of the long-term impact of the electromagnetic waves emanating from underwater cables. A cable connecting the Block Island wind farm to the mainland forced a fish company in the Narragansett area to relocate, and concrete mats placed over the cable to protect it have snagged and destroyed fishing nets, prompting more requests from commercial fishermen for compensation. Again, Bonnie Brady of the Long Island Commercial Fishermen's Association. You don't just stick an industrial park, frankly, (laughs) on the ocean floor. You don't pile drive and jet plow the ocean floor where we get our food and expect that to necessarily have a good conclusion. But they're doing it out there because there's less people to fight. The issue is likely to play out in the courts. A group of municipalities in New England and New Jersey have joined commercial fishing interests in a legal challenge to the lease of another offshore wind energy area closer to New York City. That lease was awarded to the Norwegian energy giant Statoil. That's reporter John Kalish. You don't often see the label made in Massachusetts, but manufacturing plays an outsized role in the economy of the Bay State. Bruce Gellerman from WBUR takes us to factories on the front line of a new industrial revolution, one that promises to transform how things are made and also the roles of workers. The factory floor at Custom Machine Group in Woburn is filled with dozens of multi-million dollar metal cutting machines, some the size of SUVs. The place is spotless. Yeah, it doesn't look like uh, an old Rosie the Riveter machine shop, right? Carl Pesciuto is president of Custom Machine, which mass-produces precision parts. Every machine that you see here has a computer on it. That's a multi-axis horizontal milling machine. It's all automated. The guy that was standing there, is he running the machine at all? All he does is load the component in, hits the button, and inspects after it comes out. Welcome to Massachusetts' new industrial revolution where workers armed with computing power and automation have made manufacturing a comeback story in the Commonwealth. Today, companies in the state literally make everything from soup to nuts, $48 billion a year worth of golf balls, razor blades, and jet engines, knee implants, missiles, even horseshoes. Call prosciutto. There is nothing that is produced from clothing to food. Even the air in the room is processed by something. And when's the last time you saw an air conditioner tree that you could just pick an air conditioner off of? So this field is like the air in the room. Nobody notices it's there until it's gone. Despite the heavy dose of factory automation, there's a critical shortage of skilled machinists who program the computerized tools, cut precision dies, and manage the complex manufacturing process. It's your life your future. Now is the time to make something of it. This is an ad for the Center for Manufacturing Technology. The Pesciuto family started the state-certified school a decade ago when it couldn't find enough skilled machinists for its plant. Take pride in making it at the Custom Group. Old school. Yeah, this is old school, and that's what we teach. It's back to basics for Cosmo Pesciuto. 
He founded Custom Machine in the 1960s. Now he teaches a class in Metal Shop 101 to students, mostly immigrants, who start learning the machinist's craft on an antique lathe that predates the company, before manufacturing jobs were lost to low-cost factories overseas. We lost 40 years of old school, and we have to bring it back. We're looking for people, we can't get them, so we have to train them. Today, a quarter of a million Massachusetts workers are employed in manufacturing. But less than 9,000 are skilled machinists. And Carl Pesciuto says they're in high demand. We're not even playing catch-up. We're running way behind. They're gobbled up before they even graduated. We have pretty much 100% placement of everybody. Machinist salaries range from $15 an hour, plus a lot of overtime for an inexperienced journeyman, to $150 a year for an expert. Those craftsmen who can mill a piece of metal with an artistic touch to within a few millionths of an inch. It's really like watching a Picasso get done in real time here. Chris DiBiasio is group leader for advanced manufacturing at Cambridge-based Draper. We actually don't even call them machinists at their highest classification here. We call them instrument makers. Draper has its own in-house machine shop. Here, instrument makers turn computerized drawn art into precision parts small sensors, pumps, and components that can be implanted into people to deliver medicine, used in weapon systems, or sent into space. DiBiasio says a constant challenge is finding young machinists to replace retiring craftsmen. Do they have the chops to be able to do real manual precision, you know, turning on a lathe or cutting with a mill? And if they have the hands-on skills, then you try to figure out Okay, can I then transform and take that next step into precision instrument maker? DiBiasio leads the way off the noisy machine shop floor, through a door, leading into a new machine age. This is the future of, of manufacturing now, right? That's what everyone will tell you, and this is our additive manufacturing facility. You see, it's a lot quieter. Here, instead of computerized milling machines and skilled machinists, advanced whisper-quiet 3D printers add layer upon layer of materials, building complex components. Carl Bass is CEO emeritus of Autodesk, a company that pioneered additive manufacturing software and 3D printing. What we're doing with digital design and fabrication is rewriting the rules of the Industrial Revolution. The price of 3D printers is dropping rapidly. Advanced materials, glass, metals, and plastics are being developed. And while additive machines can't print as precisely as skilled machinists can mill, Bass says that's quickly changing too. What we're now able to do with these new kinds of digital factories is make things in small quantities where you get the same kind of quality you get in the large thing, but at that same low cost. It also leads to things like mass customization, and that's dramatically different. A digital 3D factory is already transforming manufacturing in Massachusetts. Boston-based New Balance is using advanced 3D printers made by Somerville's Form Labs to produce custom-made running shoes. Catherine Petreca is with New Balance. We're actually able to get information from you, either get data or what your preferences are, and make you that part on demand with printing in much better and shorter supply chain than we can with traditional techniques. 3D printers may never be able to produce a Picasso the way a skilled instrument maker can precisely mill a piece of metal, but advanced printers can make instruments. Alexander Gomenik worked at Form Labs while an MIT grad student. 
At a recent conference at the school called The Digital Factory, he played a nylon violin produced on a 3D printer. In terms of design, it looks like Stradivarius, but it doesn't sound like Stradivarius yet. It's predicted the overall number of manufacturing jobs in Massachusetts will hold steady in the near future. But 3D printers are a work in progress. On the horizon are printers that can replicate and manufacture other 3D printers. It's not possible. Not yet. That's Bruce Gellerman from WBUR reporting. You can find photos from the factory floor and that nylon violin on our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, we'll hit the roads and the trails on ATVs. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. These days in New Hampshire's North Country, it's not unusual to see caravans of all-terrain vehicles, or ATVs, all over. This region of the state has long been defined by the loss of its paper mill industry and high unemployment rate, but the surge in ATVs, zipping down local roads and specially built trails, might be changing the North Country's image and future. While some see promise in this growing group of tourists, others worry that the region might be losing something else along the way. Reporter Casey McDermott looked into the ATV phenomenon for New Hampshire Public Radio. Casey, welcome back to Next. Thank you for having me. First of all, explain just how big a deal ATVs are in New Hampshire. Why'd you take on the series? So it was interesting. We've known that for a number of years now, um, there's been kind of a boom in ATV activity. ATV is short for all-terrain vehicles. So this includes both the kind of saddle-style four-wheelers that a lot of us are familiar with, but also these larger vehicles, which are often called um, UTVs or utility vehicles. These look more like Jeep trackers without the kind of shells that are normally on a car. Um, And they are all over the place in the North Country. Um, there's, There's been a big push by a lot of cities and towns to expand ATV trails and to expand ATV access in uh, public roads and public streets around those communities. Um, So we just figured that now would be a good time to kind of take a step back and examine um, what the influx of these vehicles, how that's changing the region. You you talked a a bit in your reporting about these two towns, Gorham and Berlin. How do they become hubs of, of ATV usage? So that has been um, both a concerted effort on the part of uh, city and town officials up there and the state at large. The state's put a lot of effort into promoting ATV use. They opened up a uh, state park specifically geared toward ATV trails a few years ago. Um, These uh, towns, like a number of other towns in particularly in the northern part of New Hampshire, have actually altered local ordinances to allow ATVs to drive on public roads, to allow um, for the vehicles and for tourists who are visiting to partake in ATV tourism uh, to get from trail to trail more easily, to allow them to, uh, you know, patronize local businesses, local restaurants. So they really are truly making, um, you know, policy changes to make themselves into ATV destinations. Let's actually hear a little bit of the sales pitch uh, for that from a Berlin City Councilwoman Diana Nelson. ATVs are what's creating the new economy in the area. They're coming to the restaurants, they're coming to the hotels, um, they're what's bringing the tourists that we not, never thought we could have here. You spoke with some other business owners. Uh, were they as pleased as uh, Diana Nelson was about uh, bringing more ATVs to town? 
Yeah, and I should say that I I teamed up on this with my colleague Todd Bookman, who covers um, the economy and business in New Hampshire. Um, And we both heard kind of, I would say, a a mixed bag of opinions. Um, While there are a lot of people who welcome this boon in ATV activity um, and who say that they've reaped the benefits, even if they aren't directly involved in the industry, um, I specifically talked to a handful of businesses who were less than enthusiastic about um, seeing their communities change um, and and become, in some cases, um, overrun with a lot of ATV traffic. You talked with Dave Ivanko in Gorham. He's a resident there. Let's listen to him. No self-respecting town would ever bring this upon itself. It, it just shows a measure of desperation. I mean, there's very few towns in the country, or especially in the Northeast, that would even tolerate this sort of uh, madness in mm-hmm. their town. So... You know, of course, they'll they'll come from far and wide to come to an RZR weekend. There, there's no other choice. I mean, they're not they're not going. There's no place in Massachusetts. There's no place in Connecticut. They're coming here, and he calls it madness in part, maybe because of the way these machines sound. Here's another Gorham resident uh, you talked to named uh, Sandy Lemire. The machines keep getting bigger and bigger, and the bigger they are, the more noise they make. You know, and if they see somebody, I'm surprised they haven't done it now, probably because you've got a microphone. Because usually when someone is out there doing something, they gun, they gun the engines to show off. Wow, Casey. So this really does set up some tension in town. It's clear that there's an economic impact. It's bringing in tourists that maybe these small towns haven't seen in some time. But it's also bringing in clearly an awful lot of noise, maybe some pollution. Tell us more about the tensions that you're that you're hearing in town. Sure. So both um, Sandy and Dave, who you just heard from, have lived in Gorham for for a long time. Sandy's been there her whole life. Dave's been there for several decades. Um, And I think what they expressed was a concern that their community, um, which they have have come to know as a kind of peaceful getaway, a very quiet part of the state, um, that that is changing, um, and in particular changing because of the noise. And those are two residents who are actually part of a group of um, about 20 residents who have been, um, you know, so concerned about the level of ATV traffic in their neighborhoods, they have actually enlisted the help of a lawyer to, um, you know, write letters to the town and to the state asking for ATV traffic to to cease in their neighborhood. So there are some other concerns about ATVs, and it gets into something else that you explored for this series, child safety. People of all ages are riding these machines. Uh, you spoke with a family with a young child on an ATV trail. Uh, let's listen to uh, Everly Lovertu and her dad, Ryan. I like the big puddle now. The big puddles? Did you yeah. used to not like them? Well, really tiny little girl, I don't like them. You didn't like them? No. Uh, ever since she was probably 18 months, she's been in it. She's always been in a helmet, glasses, you know, dust protectors for her face. You know, it's pretty important for us, a five-point harness. You don't know what else is out there. Okay, so how old is Everly now? Um, so she was about three when I talked to her. It's been about a month or two since I interviewed her um, and her family. They were in 
uh, in town. They live in Berlin, New Hampshire, but they were at uh, Jericho Mountain State Park, which is that park that I talked about that was opened specifically for ATV use. It's the site of a big festival um, where there were a lot of people and a lot of families there. The Levertus were not the only ones. And um, this is certainly promoted as a family-friendly activity by state officials, um, by you know companies that market ATVs. And one of the points you get to actually gets back to this issue of ATVs being ridden in town. You talk with Dennis Etchells, he works for the Off-Road Vehicle Program with the State Department of Fish and Game. Our biggest fear is, is the inevitable child being run over by, by a truck. Um, you know, and, and we've got heavy populated areas that these machines are being operated amongst conventional motor vehicles that don't need to be inspected. They don't need to have blinkers by children you know, and, and, you know, teenagers. So as the law stands now in New Hampshire, kids as young as 12 can operate ATVs on public roads um, without a license as long as they've taken a safety course. And that can be completed either in person or online. And the state's guidelines say that people who are, um, you know, 12 to 14 have to be accompanied by a licensed adult. But when it comes to defining what it means by accompanied, um, that just means that someone is within sight and and kind of not necessarily that that person is sitting side by side next to a parent or a guardian. I, I guess I'm just wondering, Casey, if after all this reporting, if you feel like this controversy or question about ATVs in in northern New Hampshire is something that's going to, to turn out one way or the other. I can only imagine that there's a, an awful lot of people downstate in the more populous areas of New Hampshire that don't exactly understand very much about this ATV culture, but at the same time, it feels as though there's all there's an awful lot of tensions that you've uncovered in your reporting. While the the tensions are kind of coming to a head in the northern part of the state, because that's where this has really picked up a lot more quickly than in other parts of the state. I think that this could be, um, you know, these questions that are being grappled with in places like Gorham could perhaps inform future conversations as other communities around New Hampshire or even around New England um, look to weigh the pros and cons of embracing this activity. Casey McDermott reported the series Off-Road with Todd Bookman for New Hampshire Public Radio. Thanks so much for joining us, Casey. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We've got a link to that reporting series on our website. It's nextnewengland.org. If you want to get a feel for the sport without leaving your seat, we've posted a video shot from the perspective of an ATV rider. You can check it out. That adventurous off-road spirit, well, it's, it's certainly in step with New Hampshire's celebrated motto, live free or die. That motto's been part of the New Hampshire license plate since 1971. But not long after it became standard, one Granite State driver made the case that the requirement to display the motto on his car violated his freedoms. And his case made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, next month, the court will be hearing arguments in a controversial free speech case out of Colorado where a baker refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. The baker's attorneys say they're resting their arguments on a precedent set during the decades-old legal battle over live free or die. NHPR's Lauren Chuljan tells the story of one determined New Hampshire couple and how their battle with the state's famous motto continues to have an impact today. Live free or die for many New Hampshire people is just part of the culture of living here. It's on T-shirts. It's a good New Hampshire joke punchline. It's constantly quoted in political speeches. But even though we may hear it all the time, most of us don't really think too much about it. 
But George and Maxine Maynard are different. It's Lauren. No, I said it's Lauren. The Maynards have what you might call a complicated relationship with Live Free or Die. They're in their mid-80s now. They shuffle around their one-story home in Connecticut where they keep tabs on their neighbors and read the Bible every day. The Maynards are deeply religious. Okay, Daniel, D-A-N. Take George's email address, for example. It's Daniel underscore two underscore 44. A Bible verse he will happily explain to you. As God's promised, he's going to crush all the governments of the world, and his government is going to rule by his son, Jesus Christ. So that's my email. And the Maynard's faith is central to this story and their relationship to live free or die. George calls himself a Jehovah's Witness, even though he was kicked out or disfellowshipped in 1966. I couldn't confirm why this happened. George says some other witnesses didn't like him, so they falsely accused him of defrauding other members. Whatever happened, George hasn't been allowed in a kingdom hall since, but not for lack of trying. When we moved up to New Hampshire, uh, here again, I tried to attend meetings, and they, they wouldn't let me. So they, they, would disagree, they would treat me like a leopard. So here you had George Maynard, deeply religious, disfellowshipped, feeling like he didn't have the right to practice his own religion. And he was moving to New Hampshire, a state with live free or die on its license plates. The motto didn't stand a chance. I wasn't free. To the Maynards, having live free or die stuck on their car was like advertising a way of life they didn't subscribe to. They didn't feel free, and they believe God will grant them everlasting life. So George covered up the motto with a strip of red electrical tape. And with that bit of tape, battle lines were drawn between the Maynards and the state of New Hampshire. The first encounter took place in a Lebanon parking lot in 1974. We were shopping one night, and the police... The police officer came to me and says, I have to give you a citation because you're covering up the model. I says, well, it's been a long time. I've been waiting for you. New Hampshire law prohibited residents from altering their state plates, so George was fined $25. A judge later suspended it, pending good behavior. But George didn't remove the tape. He went a step further. It wasn't too long after that, the same officer stopped me again. Neil Woolley was the Lebanon police chief back then. Only this time they'd taken a pair of... Uh, cutting shears or something, and physically cut the words right out of the plate. George ended up getting three tickets. But when the laws of of man conflict with God... He recorded himself fighting those tickets in district court. And listening to this cassette tape, it's clear that even all these years later, George's passion against the motto has not changed. When he played it for me, he mouthed the words along with his younger self, as if the arguments were imprinted in his brain. Live free or die is against my teaching and my belief because life is is more valuable than freedom to me. George told the judge he refused to pay the fines and he was sentenced to 15 days in jail. They treated me pretty nice. It was comfortable. I had to use somebody else's car to go and visit him. Oh, right, because you didn't have any license plates. Oh, she didn't have it. She didn't All have the way to Grafton County. That was quite a trip. George lost his job because of the jail time, and the Maynards really struggled to get by. But then they got a big phone call from the ACLU. They helped take the Maynards' case to the New Hampshire Supreme Court. And so a legal fight began over what free really meant in the state of New Hampshire. Yeah, it was a good trial. Here's Neil Woolley again. As police chief, he was named in the lawsuit, Woolley versus Maynard. We worked with the way the law was written at the time. But the Supreme Court found that the Maynards had the right based on their beliefs. So consequently, 
we lost. It was like, no big deal. And that would have been the end of it. Big victory for the Maynards. They could tape their plates as they pleased. And Wooly was clearly fine with the decision. No big deal. Except the ruling was a big deal in the New Hampshire State House. Well, it was, it was a very interesting time. The, the political landscape was quite different than it is now. This is Tom Rath. He was a prosecutor in the attorney general's office in the 1970s when this all went down. And he's been a fixture in state politics since. There was a, a kind of an insurgent uh, part of the Republican Party from the far right that had taken over with the election of Meldrum Thompson. Governor Meldrum Thompson. Next to Woolley and the Maynards, he should really also have top billing in this story. There are endless anecdotes that illustrate Thompson's unique brand of conservatism. He was very anti-tax. He thought the National Guard should have nuclear weapons. And he was devoted to live free or die. He talks about it in this old educational video. This was a sentiment of those who fought the Revolutionary War. And uh, I think that it's important that we understand that our liberty came to us by those who are willing to make that kind of sacrifice for it. Thompson says it was his idea before he was governor to put the motto on license plates. I don't know of any more prominent place to carry a message than right on the license plate. That's the best billboard of all. So while George Maynard saw Live Free or Die as an affront to his deeply held religious beliefs, Thompson saw the motto as a vital declaration of patriotism. So the governor ordered the attorney general to take the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Maynards were really surprised by this. Yeah, I was. I I was a little bit surprised, yeah. Yeah. I didn't think they were going to go that far, but I said, hey. As in, hey, bring it on. We'll hear arguments next in uh, 75-14-53, Woolley against Maynard. The AG's office argued that just because a car displays the motto doesn't automatically mean the driver believes in it. But in the end, the Supreme Court disagreed. And in a 6-3 decision, the court ruled it was against the Constitution to force citizens to use private property as a, quote, mobile billboard for the state's ideological message. The judgment of the United States District Court for the District of New Hampshire is affirmed. And that, finally, would have been the end of all that. But much to the surprise of everyone involved, Woolley versus Maynard has become one of the most important First Amendment cases in history. Next month, for example, the Supreme Court will hear the case of a Colorado baker who says he shouldn't be forced to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple because it's against his religious beliefs. One of the baker's attorneys, Jeremy Tedesco, calls the Maynard's victory crucial to their case. It's one of those just primary cases that if you are battling as a plaintiff against the government coercing you or compelling you to engage in expression you don't want to engage in, Woolley versus Maynard is one of your go-to cases. So thank you, New Hampshire. While the case of Woolley versus Maynard may be forever linked to New Hampshire, the Maynards actually left the state long ago for Connecticut. And in case you were wondering, yes, they also covered up Connecticut's motto, the Constitution State, on their license plates. And so a policeman tried to give me a ticket. And so what they did is said, nah, we better not fool around with this guy. <laughs> so they, they, they dropped it. And with that, at least for a moment, the Maynards felt free. That's Lauren Shulgin reporting. Coming up, a gruesome bit of history and a gooey bit of nostalgia. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. 
If you've been watching the Netflix series Stranger Things, their new season has an odd bit of New England history. In one scene, science teacher Mr. Clark is giving a lecture about Phineas Gage, a Vermont railroad worker who fell victim to a grizzly on-the-job accident. A metal spike went straight through his skull. The man survived, but his personality was forever changed. The curious story of Phineas Gage is true, and it changed our understanding of the human brain. It turns out that Gage's skull is on display at Harvard Medical School in Cambridge, where WSHU's Davis Donovan paid a visit. Today I'm at Harvard's Warren Anatomical Museum. The walls are lined with glass cases filled with skulls and bones, medical instruments and plaster casts and wax models, almost all of it from the 1800s when medicine was a lot different. It was collected for a very specific region. You needed human remains to teach about the human body. Human remains were hard to get. Museum director Dominic Hall shows me the most famous acquisition, the skull of Vermont railroad worker Phineas Gage, with its painful-looking hole in the left temple. So here's the story. Gage and his crew were blowing up rocks to make way for the railroad. His job was to put blasting powder into a keg to make explosives. He's packing down the powder with his tamping iron, which is this bar, and the charge goes off prematurely. The bar gets fired into his head. It enters into his left cheek. The bar goes behind his left eye, damages his optic nerve irreparably, and then enters into the left front of his brain, and then comes out his forehead and lands about 30 yards away. Gage's co-workers called a local doctor named John Harlow. Dr. Harlow arrived at a surreal scene, as he recalled in his journal. Here's a reading from that journal, and warning for the squeamish, it's pretty gross. I first noticed the wound upon the head before I alighted from my carriage. Mr. Gage, during the time I was examining this wound, was relating the manner in which he was injured to the bystanders. I did not believe Mr. Gage's statement at that time, but thought he was deceived. Mr. Gage persisted in saying that the bar went through his head. Mr. Gage got up and vomited. The effort of vomiting pressed out about half a teacupful of the brain, which fell upon the floor. The next few months were tough. Gage suffered infections, fevers, even a coma, but he pulled through. He was an instant celebrity. He went on tour with P.T. Barnum, and he sat for pictures holding the rod. Dr. Harlow became famous, too, as the man who worked a miracle. He published articles about Gage in medical journals, but gradually, museum director Dominic Hall says, people started to notice something a little off about Phineas Gage. He had a definite personality change. There's no doubt about it. In one of Harlow's articles, the phrase, no longer Gage, is used. I mean, he was different. He is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity. Previous to his injury, he possessed a well-balanced mind and was looked upon by those who knew him as a shrewd, smart businessman. Not everyone bought the new personality change. Gage went to see a Harvard doctor named H.J. Bigelow, who said he didn't notice anything unusual about the man. Here's a reading from an article Bigelow wrote for the American Journal of Medical Sciences. From this extraordinary lesion, the patient was quite recovered in faculties of body and mind, with the loss of only the sight of the injured eye. And that's how Phineas Gage found himself at the center of one of the biggest medical debates of the 19th century, says museum director Dominic Hall. Do you believe the brain is one large organ? I mean, or you're, you know, someone who's a localizationist, you know, which everyone sort of is now, where you think that the brain is one organ, but it has different regions that can control different function and part of your personality. And all of that's starting to get unpacked in the 1860s. Whether or not Gage actually changed, his case gave ammo to the localizationists. 
It was an important piece of early evidence to support the idea that different parts of the brain control different facets of our personality. And today he lives on in pretty much every neurological textbook in the world. If you know that the injury to the front left of your brain compromises your executive function and your social interaction, and you want to talk about that in a textbook, and you want to use a case study to do that, you incorporate Finney's Gage. Gage's celebrity died down, and he eventually went back to work as a carriage driver. Letters from people who knew him suggest his personality may have even recovered. He lived in Chile and San Francisco, and he died from a seizure in 1860. But you can come to Harvard and see the exhibit, which recently acquired a newly discovered photo of Gage. He cuts a handsome figure, a black coat, his hair swept back, staring forward with his one good eye, and gripping the iron rod that made him a celebrity and an entry in the medical books. That's Davis Donovan reporting, and the story comes from his new podcast for WSHU, Off the Path, from New York to Boston. Highly recommended. Now, you might think the word fluff means something inconsequential, but if you say the word fluff to many who grew up in New England, you might evoke sweet childhood memories of home, the kinds of memories that have people singing its praises no matter where they live today. Independent reporter Carol Vassar explored this phenomenon on a recent visit to Fluff's hometown, Somerville, Mass. Autumn in New England is festival season. You can find fairs all over centering on moms or apples or pumpkins or cranberries, even oysters. But the What the Fluff Festival is unique. It's early autumn, but it's hot. And there's a crowd gathering at Union Square in Somerville, Massachusetts. The 12th annual What the Fluff Festival is underway. The centerpiece? A simple, gooey concoction that comes in a jar with a red, white, and blue label. It's made of just four ingredients. Sugar, corn syrup, egg whites, and vanilla. Marshmallow fluff. So it's basically just like um, marshmallows, just like melted. Jenny Pierre lives in Somerville. Her description is accurate to a point. Think marshmallows, but without that soft outer skin. Only the creamy, sweet, spreadable inside, ready for immediate consumption. But for Bryn Reinstetler, who just moved to Greater Boston from Montana, fluff is something of a delicacy. She's trying it for the first time in a fluff empanada. So it has fluff and chocolate in it, and it's like a yummy baked good. I don't know. It's better than a Pop-Tart. <laughs> so I asked Ryan Statler about my favorite fluff combination, the fluffer nutter. She turns to her friend Julie Stein to discuss it. Are those the things I see people carrying around like white bread with yeah. like fluff? Exactly. Two pieces of white bread, fluff on one side, peanut butter on the other. Best explained in song. First you spread, spread, spread your bread with peanut butter and marshmallow fluff and have a fluffer nutter. It's like soft and chewy and sweet and uh, a little salty, a little sweet. It's really good. That's Mimi Graney, author of What the Fluff, the Sticky Sweet Story of an American Icon, founder of the What the Fluff Festival, and fluff historian. I don't remember not knowing about fluff. Um, I felt like it was uh, hot chocolate was a, a medium just to carry a spoon of melting fluff. Um, and I grew up on fluff and others like almost every other New England or two. The story of fluff begins here in Somerville, where Alan Durkee and Fred Mower first made fluff in 1917 before building a plant in nearby Lynn. And it turns out this part of Massachusetts has a known sweet tooth. America's first uh, 
chocolate manufacturer was here. It was here that the egg beater got developed, where the first places to do granulated sugar. Massachusetts also lays claim to the marshmallow cream industry, which harkens to the 19th century and cookbook author Fanny Farmer. She uh, promoted it as a shortcut for making candy and frostings and things like that. There's some other brands in other parts of the country, like Solo Marshmallow Cream. Or Kraft Foods Jet Puffed Marshmallow Cream. But the taste of those brands isn't quite what New Englanders raised on the Jerky Mower brand are used to. There's nothing else like marshmallow fluff. That's my brother, Jim Vassar. It's whipped, it's uh, full of air. Uh, I mean, you pick up... Uh, a tub of marshmallow fluff, and it's like picking up a, a jar of feathers. I mean, it's just very, very light, very, very fluffy, very unique. How to account for that unique Durky Mower marshmallow fluff taste? It's in the manufacturing process, according to Mimi Graney. The way they make fluff is sort of the way that you would at home with it basically just a giant mixer, batch by batch. Marshmallow fluff has even made it into space, where Lowell, Massachusetts native and astronaut Richard Lenahan consumed a fluffernutter. Yet it can be difficult to source for people like my brother, who are part of the great New England diaspora. Jim lives in Florida. Some rely on local relatives to send fluff care packages by mail. Others stock up while visiting family here in New England. But be careful with fluff on a plane. Don't pack it in your suitcase. Fluff has a tendency of expanding, so make sure it's really tightly sealed. Back at the Fluff Fest, it's a wacky combination of nostalgia and innovation. The Flufferettes dance team is here, decked out in tulle, sparkles, and glitter, posing for selfies with passers-by. Tuesday Adams is one of them. It's like if a 1960s cigarette girl represented fluff. The fest provides an opportunity to expand your culinary horizons. Fluff ice cream is a good place to start, or so says Anna Gall with Tipping Cow Ice Cream, located right in Somerville. Basically, we replace our sugar with marshmallow fluff, so it's like a chewy, whipped version of our ice cream, and we do it here in a a vanilla flavor. How about fluff pierogies? Casey White with Jaju Pierogies has you covered. Yeah, so we're cooking up a fluff and butter pierogi, which is peanut butter, fluff, and bacon. Pretty, Pretty awesome. As for me, I'm a bit of a traditionalist. Marshmallow fluff and the fluffer nutter means home. That's Carol Vassar reporting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Check out more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you enjoyed this week's show, you can follow our Facebook page at Next to New England. We've got stories from around the region, videos, and more. It's facebook.com slash next New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Melville Charitable Trust and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.